Entrepreneur MBA podcast purpose is to help existing business owners grow their companies past the $10 million in revenue per year benchmark. Here is your host, Stephen Halasnik. Hello, everyone. My name is Stephen Halasnik, and I am co-founder of Financing Solutions. For those of you who don't know Financing Solutions, we are a company that provides very easy to set up lines of credit for small businesses. And I will be your host, as I usually am, for today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. If you're interested in learning more about getting a line of credit for your business, and again, we're a direct lender. We, we're not a broker. We are using our own money. Uh, and I, you know, I'm passionate about the idea that every business should have a line of credit. Uh, please go to our website. Go to fscreditline.com. Again, FS is a financing solutions, creditline. FSCreditLine.com. If you would like to get a quote, if you'd like to see if you're qualified for how much, how much it costs, all those other things. Uh, I, I think every entrepreneur should have a line of credit in place. I know for almost the majority of my career, I always had a backup plan. That's what a line of credit is for. Over the last 25 years, I've built six companies in the $5 million to $25 million range, including two companies that have made the Inc. 500 fastest growing companies in the United States. I love learning from people with business experience. And today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Reza uh, Farahani. And Reza uh, Farahani is a serial entrepreneur and data science consultant who most recently uh, co-founded and exited WF Homey a people analytics tool helping companies embrace data to make decisions that enable them to improve the employee experience and create productive environments, whether they're remote, hybrid, or on-site. Reza's experience has positioned him well to speak on all aspects of startup of the startup environment, from ideation to exit, and as a visionary in the future of work sector. Uh, Reza, welcome to today's Entrepreneur MBA podcast. Uh, yeah, uh, thank you, Stephen, for having me. Uh, super excited to have this conversation. Yeah, you know, the, the cool thing is when I started this podcast, I think it was almost, almost six years ago, um, I get to pick topics and um, I get to learn about things that I'm really, really interested in. Today's session is going to be that way. Um, uh, you know, we're going to cover what happened when you see your company can't scale. And I, you know, I have some personal experience of this, you know, uh, as well. So, you know, we'll, I'll be talking about that as well, but this is going to be a topic that I think, you know, I'm just, it's, it's going to be fun for me to talk about it, uh, not talk about, but ask questions and, and listen to uh, Reza as well. So, you know, let's just start off with this, uh, uh, Reza, t- tell us a little bit about your background first before you started WF Homey. Yeah, for sure. So my background is like I'm engineer by trade. Uh, I did my undergrad and grad both in engineering. And then uh, after I, I graduated, I started uh, working as a data scientist in an innovation lab. Uh, we were like responsible for creating new line of business uh, or a new product for a like a big uh, like a billion dollar company to diversify their offering i was working there as a data scientist and kind of like bringing new product then uh, i moved to banking i was data scientist there too 
And after that, like quickly moved to consulting, management consulting. And I was the first or I mean, second person in a BCG office in Toronto that I was working on data for a while. And uh, quickly right after that, uh, after pandemic happened, I kind of was very, like had this entrepreneurship age and was really thinking when you come to the disruptions in the market, that's where, that's, that's, as like you know it's a level uh, playing field get level for uh, startups and like big incumbents in the market so that was so the best if you don't start a startup when disruption happened when you want to start it so i left my comfortable well-paying job in like uh, management consulting and i started work from homie and uh yeah and that was come from like the pain point that i felt working in different corporate environment or startups yeah i mean Listen, over the last 25 years, if you started a company or if you have experience in data science, you are, you're in this great area, right? It's just, it's so much like I've been this, I've been there before, you know, it's one thing starting a company in a field that's old. Like I, my first company I started was in digital printing, right? It's like the worst field printing field this is like you know it's not popular now but at the time this is you know almost 30 years ago uh you know people were using offset presses to press to print brochures right and i got involved in digital printing and and i when i was in that business i quickly realized this was an industry i did not want to be in Right. And then I go into, you know, some other industries, uh, you know, it, where you, you had the old adage, you have a, a rising tide floats all boats, right? It's so much easier to build a company in an industry that's just taking off than an industry that's either going down or just matured. Yeah, uh, that's what they say. Like you want to build a company in an area that's big and it's growing because the new opportunity get created. So if it's big area and not growing, it's already saturated. So you yeah. want. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, I have this friend who he started this company 30 years ago in action in data science, right? 30 years ago. Right. And he, he's literally the worst business person. I think I've, well, the second worst business person I've ever met <laughs> because he didn't make anything of the company. Right. He, no way. He, yeah, he hit this. He hit this industry in its infancy, right? And uh, and he didn't make any. Uh, he he made money, but it was a joke, right? But uh, and he kept the company for thirty years, and he's still <laughs> just unbelievable. But um, now you 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 got involved with how did you come up for the idea for? Well, first let's take a step back. What does uh, I'm trying to find the name of your company? W F Homie. Yeah, work from homey. Yeah, yeah, a work from homey. That's what it is. Okay. Yeah. WF homey. Uh, what what exactly does it do? Uh, so when when the pandemic hit, I, I can I think that uh, I just combined your both of question in one. I think that would be create a good uh, understanding of why I started and what it was doing. I was working at BCG, like doing a lot of project, and I was working with people in Germany and with people in LA and I was in the East Coast. So you could imagine how my day would look like, yeah? 
uh, from early morning to late night, just making sure we are having the proper sync communication. And uh, before that, everyone traveled in one location and we did the project in one location. People from Germany, people from LA come to one location. We did it like a work a few days together. What I noticed right away, just if you have a team that, uh, for example, you are doing a running call center, yeah? There is no reason the call center, people working a call center would be together. Just the, you, they can take the job while they're around the world. Like they can work from their home no drop in the productivity. But if you are working in a high-performing team, a high-performing uh, environment, with, which need a lot of creativity, that's kind of the remote, uh, going remote, not being in the same location, hit a lot of companies. And I felt that with my myself when I was working there, yeah? Either I should have been always on the calls or uh, I was out of sync. Then I noticed like, hey, there is a better way. Like there are companies who are async. Uh, they're like working in different time zones. One of them is GitLab and they are successful, yeah? So we are, were trying to bring that mindset of, hey, you can have a, still a high-performing team while working in different environment, not being all, everyone in the same place. And so we like, that was kind of the triggered idea. Let's go there and fix the problem. I'm a data scientist, so my first gut hunch was like, hey, we can use the data to solve this problem, yeah? We can look at how people are doing, where they are falling short, and we create a recommendation system. It's like, hey, fix this problem and your team engagement become higher while it's still remote. Uh, so it kind of was a mix of using AI plus a playbook or the knowledge in the industry to help the team, remote teams, like high-performing remote teams get back to their... Uh, original place, yeah. So in, let's try to keep it simple terms, and that is, what what were you looking at? What type of data were you looking at to determine? I guess if someone's productive. Uh, so there are two things here. I just want to like separate it right away. There is productivity and engagement. Yeah. Uh, Measuring productivity that was coming later in our product, our goal was mostly engagement. And we believe that if your team is engaged, it automatically improves your productivity. Yeah. So that was kind of, yeah, let's build a product, take a leap of faith and do the uh, measure engagement and then go to productivity. So our focus mostly and our data that getting was mostly around engagement. What type of data we are doing? We are doing that. There were a few goals for us. Yeah. First of all, we wanted like a real-time data. We wanted unbiased data and we wanted different source of data. So three things, real-time, unbiased, and we make sure uh, like we have com uh, you know, a comprehensive view of what's happening. Uh, so we had a mix of questionnaire that we ask monthly from employees. And also we look at like their, how they are reacting. So for example, it's like a team not just looking what are the message of people getting like freaky there, just looking how often people are messaging to each other. Or if they, if someone puts something, how even like what emojis people react to. Is it like, is, is there interaction inside your team? Uh, how's your async communication look like? Documentation. Uh, and we could look at all of these one and like a slice and dice a data based on the regions, time zone cohorts. And like a lot of things like, hey, like the young people, like 
younger people are doing good, but like, you know, they are as senior levels are not doing that great or vice versa. Or the people you have in Berlin are not doing good, but the people you have in Philippines are doing well. Yeah. So we wanted to like have a complete view of what's happening and then started giving recommendation how to fix that. And so like to keep it simple and I, you know, I, uh, I don't know a lot about this, but would you put software on someone's desktop and then that software collected data to see what applications they opened up, how much they were involved with the interaction of those applications, how much downtime they had. Is that what you're doing? No, no. Actually, as I said, like we, there were two questionnaire. It was a questionnaire and we look at your, because, okay, let's step back. Yeah. You, you were in office. And you wanted to see if like you have a developer and that developer is happy or not. Yeah. With his work. You could look at the guy in the office, like, oh, this guy's like working like seven AM to seven PM, not happy all day in meetings. Like, okay, this sucks. I need to go change it. Now you're remote. Your team member could like not be happy, could be seven AM to seven PM, fully burned out, and you wouldn't ever notice. So it's like how we can find this out. Questionnaire is obvious one. We did questionnaire, but we did it in a fully different way. I'll get to that one. But the second piece was like I can have, now you're remote, every interaction that you have with your team is kind of recorded. Yeah. If I'm on a Teams, on a Slack or a group chat, I can see how a person like, you know, if he's engaged in the conversation, uh, I can look at his calendar and say like how busy he is. Yeah. It's like, oh, it's my like engineer shouldn't be in a meetings like more than like 20 hours a week, yeah, in meetings with more than like group meetings. If that is happening, that sucks. Uh, so we didn't need to even install a software. We could have looked at like the communication that happens inside the company. So now every meeting is in the calendar. We have a track record of that. Every communication is on a Slack. We have track record of that. So uh, we use their APIs to get this data and we start correlating that one with the engagement. It's like, hey, if you're engineers, like not engaging in your conversations. He's on meeting all day and he's online from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. He's going to be burned out. He's going to leave the company. He's not going to be productive. Yeah. And we also tap that one with the marriage that data. We just simply asking not just questions about uh, like a politics, like how do you feeling today? Yeah. So we didn't rely on one point of data. We, we gathered as much as data as possible to get a cohesive comprehensive view and with reasoning go back to the hr teams like hey you need to change this behavior you need to put like a better practices like no wednesday meetings yeah or you put uh, meetings like hey i want everyone to shut off their like get out of their laptop after like 6 p.m you know just giving instruction to your team to push it towards uh, better practices while being remote and prevent pe preventing people from burning out how, how is though that how you were asking questions? Okay, let's let's just move on into the scale stuff because that's probably more important. But um, so you started the company in two thousand twenty-one, and uh, and and right from the very beginning, you had the idea of the mission was uh, employee uh, satisfaction and engagement is. Is uh, is that was the mission from the very beginning? 
Yeah, yeah. The mission was like employee engagement and satisfaction, just making sure like uh, people are uh, like people don't leave your company because like silently, what they call the term like uh, the silent quitting and all of those terms came up. But yeah, mostly engagement, just making sure you you know what's happening in your company culture. Yeah, that was the goal. So, so you were looking at what, what would have happened if everybody was together in an office and saying, okay, how can we identify these issues from both a productivity standpoint, from a satisfaction standpoint, now that everybody's working remotely? Exactly. Exactly. All right. So you started the business in 2021. Uh, Did it require any angel funding, anything like that? Yeah, I mean, we I started the company, we went through an uh, accelerator right away called, uh, at that time it was Accelerate, now it's Forum Venture. Uh, it's an accelerator, like in North America, they have presence in a Bay Area, New York, and Toronto. And uh, there we start doing our customer discovery, what's the problems, and I start getting like our initial customers. Yeah, like create a momentum. But you and got I, angel, but you got angel done feel, you first got the angel funding or you, you started working on the product first and then you got angel funding as you went along. So in 2020, we did like a very, like a Wizard of Oz solution. I don't know if that uh, people know about it. it just kind of like puts a very wanky version of the solution, very like a, a kind of one-time working solution to just see how does it work. We sold to one customer and we started doing a lot of customer interview and that gave us a confidence there's a problem here. Yeah. So we talked to customer. And people to are, yeah. People are willing to put the check down. Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. That's a number one way I think to prove to your angel funders that this is going to work is uh, I have billable, uh, I have clients that are willing to pay for it. Right. Yeah, exactly. Like even like, I mean, the product wasn't even put together, but we sh- the problem was so deep that people are willing to just put it right to check, put the check right away. Yeah, it's like, hey, I have a problem mm, right now. How good. to solve it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and uh, then we went through, uh, like, we just pitched that one to forum. Uh, we got into the cohort like January twenty twenty one. So we started the program with them right away. They gave us rates like a hundred. 50k check like a small check to just uh and the goal of that was like hey let's get this money like let's instead of that uh, wizard of Oz solution create an mvp bring like uh four logos get some subscription like that was our goal is okay we want to make sure we have ARR subscription people are paying us to do this continuously and we did that uh successfully just you know going through the, my network, uh, going through our wait list that we had. Then we started doing fundraising uh, in the summer of 2021, our seed round. And that was like, we were able, we were able to close that in like a couple months, uh, like $1.6 million. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, because we had the customer, we had the traction, we had the upseller right there. Uh, so we were... A, like able to raise the money. Like what? Why? why I mean, one point five million. Why did you need the money? I mean, how many? I'm assuming it all went to salaries, right? Yeah, I mean, like that's a good question. Why you need the money? Uh, for me, that was a solution that wasn't like I just stumbled upon right away. Yeah, uh, it was a solution 
uh, that uh, a lot of people were going after it. And being into the market first uh, was a important. Uh, sorry, I think my camera is just let it go. Don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, sorry. it's just I'll, you I'll know, you, sorry for YouTube users who are watching this on YouTube, but go ahead. Uh, yeah. So we kind of. I lost my train of thought. Yeah, why raising money? The only like you need to have a reason to raise money, and our reason to raise money was there you is wanted a race. To get, you want to get out there first. You want to be the first yeah. one out there. Uh, it was now okay. So I want to jump ahead, and then we're going to come back. You sold the company two years later after in yeah. 2023? Uh, we sold the company end of 2022, actually. Like the December of 2024. Like, gotcha. Okay. December of 2023. So very, very short. And then I'm going to get right to the, the heart and soul of this. And that is why, and then we'll backtrack again. I mean, well, I, I, I ha- I'm going to ask the question, what did you sell it for? Uh, we I, unfortunately we cannot disclose uh, how much we sold it for at this moment. Yeah, we signed uh, through it. I can tell right. we yeah. Well, well, what was the? Let me I can ask. Let me ask this question. What was the multiple that you sold it at? So, so I, for I our listeners, yeah. So, our, so, so for our listeners to know is when company when someone goes to buy your company, they will they typically will buy you uh, uh, X times your EBITDA earnings before income taxes. Right. And, um, and so, you know, in, in uh, so, and we're going to get into a little bit more about that in a second, but can, can you share with us what your multiple was? Yeah. So our multiple was around like, uh, I can get give a range between eight to 12. So it was a okay. good range. And the reason right. behind it, I just want to clarify, like, uh, because we were, I get to that one, like we had around 50,000 users, we weren't monetizing. I don't think, wow. uh, I think that's a lot uh, of users in two years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So the issue is, but it wasn't 50,000 50, companies. It was 50,000, 50, right? Employees. Yeah, yeah, fifty thousand employees. employees. Yeah, and how many companies in general were your clients? Because you, you're selling it to their clients, correct? I mean, to yeah, companies, yeah. right? Yeah, we sell it to companies, teams, and uh, even like you, you have a small team, you can start using the product. Uh, we had around, uh, like I would say, like sixty to uh, sixty to seventy logos in our <laughs> so company logos. Yeah, like companies in our portfolio, like like, like as a partner. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And, um, okay. Thank you for sharing. So, so for our listeners to know the more valuable your company, the higher the multiple will be. All right. Exactly. So, yeah. So eight to 12 is a, is valuable and you would expect that in the technology space, honestly. Okay. Um, you know, if like some of the businesses I had, the multiple was four to six, which means that, it's a very mature industry and the multiple makes what the multiple really means is that if you kept the money, if you kept the company and you were doing, you did the same amount of sales every year that you're doing now with no growth, it would take you eight to 12 years 
to make the money back that a uh, that 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 someone bought your company for. Okay, so yeah, so so yeah, yeah. you made so here's the million dollar question, right? When did you recognize that there was a scaling issue with the business? That's exactly is like the one, the point that we noticed. Uh, I'll, I'll go like a, a little back and tell you the story. It's like when we started, we had like amazing growth, 20 month over month over month growth. We were like closing logos right and left. Like uh, we had, lo- we had, we had a company, like we had the biggest media company in us, like uh, just using us on the pilot. We had the biggest supply chain company in us was using us on a pilot. We have a few big fintech using us on a like on a regular basis, but uh, we couldn't monetize it very well. Yeah, while we had fifty thousand users, we had like very strong logos. Uh, we noticed this is not uh, why we are not monetizing it. And when we started, it was I don't know if you guys remember like a year ago, two years ago, there was shortage of like a like a white collar people. Yeah, it's like professional, tech professional, finance professional. Like it was shortage. Everyone was worried about burnout. Everyone was worried about the retention of people. Yeah. Then in March of 2022, kind of the market started changing rapidly. Yeah. It went after it's like, hey, we like I wanna hire this engineer. Like I'm gonna be willing to pay like a 200 k signing bonus just bring another engineer to my team. So like to, oh, by the way, I'm gonna lay off half of my team. I'm gonna lay off like 20% of my team. So our solution was really focused on retention, kind of become a, like drop from the top of the list. Yeah. And uh, then I started thinking about it, like why this is happening. And who, and we noticed like people who are in HR space, if they're doing payroll, if they're doing HR system, like very, very crucial stuff, they are not feeling that hit. We are feeling the hit because we were solving a problem for a period of time that was really important. And maybe today in today's economy is not that important. So the growth that we had was like, oh, we are doing amazing stuff, become an uphill battle. It's like going through. And now uh, I'll just say CAC to LTV ratio, uh, which is the cost of acquiring customer compared to how much we are making money, uh, was not favorable anymore. So our cost of acquisition went high. Our uh, lifetime value of the customer or ACV annual contract value stayed the same. Uh, that was the moment of, hey, either we need to like pour a lot more cash, like go raise another, like instead of $2 million, raise $10 million and pass this valley of death of like, or we need to fully pivot and move to payroll and HRS systems to complement our solutions. And the company that actually bought us was having that. And that was a perfect, the reason we could sell in that multiples because they exactly had the system and they can go and sell to all their customers our product right away. And so they, they got. So they had very little cost of acquisition of a client. It was all. It was all uh, upside for them. Exactly. All. All upside. You could like. And our solution didn't need much of integration. It was like, uh, just roll it out, 
first of all, like, I don't know how much you use your HR systems or payroll, but probably employee doesn't touch that much in a day-to-day -day basis. But with the solution that we had, we create a lot of active users with the customer for them too. So the, the multiple is the simplest thing to talk about it, but no one talks about uh, how the multiples uh, is not a complete view of what's happening. Yeah. Uh, I would like describe it in three ways. How the like beside what else beside exists beside multiple? Like one of these is revenue, obviously. Yeah, uh, you what you mentioned the uh, EBITDA, but the other thing is like how much potential exists that I can make money out of this, like buying it. Yeah, so EBITDA is kind of like if you think about selling company like selling EBITDA. If you are saying like, hey, I'm selling this pan with the cost of production. Yeah, how much does it cost me to make it? But that market doesn't work like that. Market is based on a supply and demand, how much value that pen can add to, uh, to my day-to-day -day business, and that's how much I'm willing to pay. That's why I'm like, uh, revenue is only one way to look at it. But there is like, we were kind of at a strategic buyout because we could add so much revenue to the company that buy us right away if they were right partner. Yeah, well, I, you know, listen, uh, I'm sure that the company that acquired you said, oh, we'll make our money back in three or four years. And so we're willing to pay eight to 12 because we can just get our money back. It really gets us in a stronger position with our clients. This is going to be a big money maker. I mean, nobody buys a company if they think that the sales are not, if they have no effect on the growth of the sales. So this company, and plus they kind of eliminated the costs that you had of acquisition costs. So that, that was a big deal. So, so you, you, uh, did they, uh, did you recognize too that I know I've been there because I've had businesses, all my businesses, you know, I, my business partner and I, he, so he had a very successful company that he sold, right? Uh, for a high multiple, by the way. Uh, and, and I haven't really sold, I have one company right now that that's going to be sellable. And other than that, I really haven't sold my companies, right? They were just been good money makers, quality of life businesses, good, good money makers. Uh, uh, so we both, him and I both say, if we were to do this all over again, we would have gone for something bigger, you know, a bigger idea, something, and let's use that word scalable, right? Much more scalable, right? Now, now my business partner, Keith, uh, he, his company was, well, again, it wasn't exactly scalable. So, um, so when, you know, did you, let me ask you, so this is what I, and I've done this before. I've kind of run companies into the ground that I've had to move on to something else, right? Because I recognize that the business wasn't scalable, right? Uh, I, I couldn't sell it, but it was still a good money maker. And, but I, I couldn't find a way to pivot those companies you know, so that they became bigger and scalable. Did you recognize that this just is not going to be a scalable model if I went out on my own and just raised funds? Yeah, uh, exactly. That was the situation. So when our CAC to LTV went up, it was like, hey, I have a few solutions in front of me. Yeah, 
go raise a hell lot of money and like keep going through this one uh, or like figure out what we are doing here and uh, i'm not saying like oh it just was all my decision that was not a good time to raise money also like if it was uh we hit that like a year before uh maybe i would have done that which i in the hindsight i was i would say that was a mistake because essentially this company wasn't like the idea wasn't there was not much uh like what they call the word tam total addressable market it wasn't that big yeah uh the total addressable market and it was what they call it like it was a vitamin or a painkiller it was also a vitamin so it could have go raise money but at the end of the time, you really need to be worried about your opportunity cost. Yeah. It's like, hey, I can go make yeah. a good money here. I can go make uh, like a good salary here. Yeah. But can I do something better with my time? And that was the question like I had for the, from the, I would say like the summer of 2022, but to, until we sold the company. It's like, can I do something better with my time? Yeah. I, I... Like I look at my businesses, uh, not the not two of them I have right now because there are def, there are different plays that the two businesses I have right now, financing solutions and elite funeral funding. I my business partner and I wanted good businesses that didn't have a lot of employees. We didn't want any employees in essence. We had been down that path, and then we wanted something that would last a long time. So, so, uh, but my point being is I. With my other businesses, you learned, you're a young guy, you learned about scaling and market disruption at a young age. The word, the term market disruption for me wasn't in evolved and it wasn't around 30 years ago. Like that market disruption as a key ingredient to what venture capitalists are going to buy. Okay, uh, forget about angel funding for a second. You know, that I don't think I don't remember that term coming about until 15 or 20 years ago. Right. And um, so, you know, I so I I was late to the game. I, you know, I, I think I do remember the word scale in my, like my third business. Um, they, you know, I, I thought, you know, I had an objective with my third business, which is I'm going to scale this to 10 million and then I'm going to sell it to somebody and I'm going to do something else. I thought I could do that. I was going to make a regional play in the United States, build a company in this region in a mature market and then sell it to one of my competitors. And uh, that's what, by the way, you know, like the purpose of the MBA podcast is to get your company to 10 million because when you're talking about a, a company that's not venture backed, or sorry, angel funding back, $10 million in, in cash flow per year is the magic number for when somebody is starting to be interested in buying you. So yeah, um, go ahead. I just want to say like, that's a good number because like, if you want to hit 1 million, like you can have a bad idea, like terrible idea. And I would say like, there is playbooks to how to take it to a $1 million year. Definitely. Yeah. Yep. But you just hustle. If you, are, you hustle, yeah. you know, yeah. But when you reach that place, like, hey, I want to take it to ten million dollar, then you hit the problem. It's like if this is a bad idea, it not, it's not going to go to ten million. Yeah, and the other thing is that the right. The other thing is the owner can't. 
be the only person really doing the rainmaking at 10 million. You know, you can't be the rainmaker at $10 million in revenue. You have to have had teach, you had to have taught other people. You have to have business processes. You have to have, you have to have, now listen, we're just talking revenue. We're not talking about profit. Okay. So there's another yeah. component to it as well, right? You could be $10 million in sales, not making any profit. And what the hell are you doing? I hope you're going for some scale there. And I, I tell you, that's that's a little crazy uh, without angel funding and venture capitalists again. Again, like nowadays, very few people build companies without angel funding and venture capital. Like it's the thing that my business partner and I both tell young people, not every idea has to have angel funding and venture capital. And that's like a foreign concept. All my businesses, I never had any angel funding, never had any venture capital. And I would say, in fairness, everybody that's out there, I think if I was to do it all again, I would go to angel funding, uh, you know, as as my only strategy, you know. And it probably would have forced me into better ideas because it had to be much more scalable than the quality of life businesses that I built. So. That's such an interesting thing. Like I went through angel funding and now I'm in the opposite camp. I was like, hey, I'm not gonna, because angel funding put you in a position that's like, now you're like, it makes quitting hard. If like your idea is not good, then you have like a fiduciary duty to your investors and everything. So you need to keep the ball well, floating. Yeah. You, you, what is your, I see it all the time with business owners who've gone the angel funding route and it's like, are they building a company to make money or are they building a company to raise money from angel investors because they tout how much money they've raised? I'm like, I'm like, I don't care how much money you've raised. Tell me how much you're making. Oh, well, well we're, that's not there yet. Okay. Well, I'm yeah. sorry, but your proof of concept, that's why when you did that early on in your career where you got a paying client, you know, I mean, you know, it, it, that's pretty important because you have to listen. I, I, maybe there, I have to do it off the top of my head. Maybe there's a number of things that are really important in businesses. Number one is do you have a, it's not number one, but a working product or, or a working service. Okay. Number two, what does it cost for you to acquire clients? Number three, what do you make off of each client? Okay. Those are three really. And number four is how can you build processes or scale it so that your, your unit costs, your serviceability goes, the cost per unit or, or service goes down as your sales go up. Okay. Cause that's, that's, you know, those are four fundamental parts of it, a key and then there's actually a fifth one. Oh, there's lots. The fifth one is how are you going to finance it? Okay. Because really angel funding, venture capital, bank financing, factoring are all there to finance growth of a company because the money you pay in financing is it should be less than what you make by sending, selling more of a product. Yeah, yeah, that is uh, like really true. And it, honestly, you like as a founder, you need to figure this stuff out. Yeah, you cannot outsource it. Yeah. So you mentioned about the product. You you need to like when you start a company, you need to have first of all 
a vision for like where you are going and what problem you are solving. So I think like that's the most important one. And and then I mean scalability is something we talk a lot. Uh, I mean it, there is not nothing wrong with having a business that is not scalable. Yeah, you can have a business, make money, live a life, and it's great. Yeah, a lot of companies uh, go make business like they have businesses. They go make I don't know like. Two million, three million, a million, whatever. Like you can have a restaurant and make sure. that. And the restaurant is not, yeah, there is don't nothing go, wrong don't, with that. Don't go into restaurant business, but okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you need to have, you, you need to be honest with yourself. Like, hey, I'm building this one to, like, you know, sustain myself. Yeah. If you are not doing that, like you have a bigger dream, bigger vision, then you need to be worried about this stuff, scalability. Like, how I can I scale it? Yeah. There. Are, enough people out there to reach out and uh, and they are willing to buy, buy X amount of it from me. And the, the best way to calculate it, a lot of people come and say, like, hey, I don't know. Uh, the gardening business is like $10 million, like $10 billion business. If I get 1% of it, that becomes 100 million. That's just totally wrong. That's like fundamentally wrong. The best way to calculate to see if the market is big or not Say so put up put up a price point for your product. It's like, hey, I'm selling like Calendly, for example, like a calendar booking. I'm selling this one ten dollar per month. And how many people I would imagine buy this one? It's like, oh, it's a professionals, companies X, Y, and Z. Come up with a number. It's like, hey, there could be like a ten million people buy this product. So like ten million, ten million people buy this product times ten dollars. I'm charging them per month. That become hundred million dollar. Now that's the way to calculate your market. It's like, hey, go and ask this question. It's like, hey, I'm selling this one specifically to chiropractor. It's like, how much you are selling? It's like, hey, I'm selling it ten dollar per month. It's like, how many chiropractor exists? Like a million. And then you can say, okay, so that's become a ten. Like the best case scenario, become a ten million dollar company. Yeah, like the calc, not going like, hey chiropracticing is a $10 billion business or something like that and get 1% of it. This is not going to happen. Uh, so this is the best way to just see the first part. It's like, how big is the market? The second piece that you mentioned is like, how can I get it? So you are selling this product at a $10 per month basis. So you make $120 per year. How much you should spend to make one customer? If I spend... And this is pretty easy, yeah? I can go and start a Google ad or a Facebook ad and spend $100. Like, hey, can I get one customer or not? <laughs> like, you know, just go and test it out. I spend $100, $200, $300 on a Google ad, Facebook ad, and try to see if you can get how many customers. And that becomes your CAC. So your CAC to LTV ratio, like assume how much money you can make money on that, it should be less than one. Like uh, the number should be less than, what is it? Like the ratio should be around three or less, yeah? Yeah, and it's like now is a playbook. Just like you have it, you have everything. You know how much does it cost me to get a customer? How much I can make out of it? How much I uh, uh, should spend uh, on acquiring them? And then, like that's it. Like then, if this is a scalable idea or not? Again, nothing wrong to build a product that you charge ten dollar for chiropractor. This is not going to be a scalable more than ten million dollar. You know it. Everyone knows it. The VCs know it. The angel funds know it. You know so. Just be, just go through that practice. Yeah, I think the at the end of the day, and listen, eventually, I always had this idea. I want to write a book 
about where do business ideas come from and, and, you know, break it down. And I, you know, I had a mentor who would kind of, kind of always help me kind of think through how to find my next business. And, you know, you, you, I think it comes down to one thing and that is you want to find these major pain points that, that people are having that they're willing to spend a lot of money on. And that's really the simplistic way. And, and, uh, and you want to really make sure there's not a lot of competition in that space. And, and by the way, if there's no competition, you got to understand why. Okay. Um, and, and if there's just a couple, you have to understand what they're doing. Okay. And if there's a ton, uh, uh, my guess is that's not a good industry to be in. Okay. So I think it comes down to find a problem that people are willing to spend a lot of money on. And that's the nature of building a really, really good business. Now we all talked about how we, you know, you, we're going to wrap this up, but how, uh, angel funding isn't really always the best way to go. My attitude is the idea determines if it's going to be angel funded, if it's going to be privately funded through cash flow, uh, if it's going to go public, if it's going to get venture capital, it's the idea will dictate your strategy going forward for uh, how you're going to finance it. So, um, uh, Reza, I'll let you wrap it up with one last thought. Uh, yeah, I mean, I would say I just got from other conversation with a few people like a friend of mine uh, who was working for Google. Uh, I just want to put it out there to the people who are working uh, jobs. Like, always think about like the opportunity cost. Yeah, think about if I'm not doing this and doing something else, would the like would would I you know add more value? Uh, whatever your like you know value system is, like you want to help the world to be a better place, you want to make more money. It, and there is no one answer, but think about it is like, hey, I'm doing what I'm not doing. How much I'm losing there? Yeah, not how much you're gaining from what you're gaining. Yeah, so, and, and, and have, be- I agree, and have a strategy because so like the idea is so let's give the the most simple scenario. You are a data scientist and you're working for another company and you're making $200,000 a year, right? P- plus your benefits. So it's at least 30% of your salary plus is benefits and all the other stuff, you know, maybe stock options. You got to take everything to an account. Okay. Uh, you need to say is, okay, if I work for this company uh, or any other company, I might make it up to 300000 or $350,000 in 10 years, you know? You know, what would I do if I did it on my own? Okay. Exactly. And by the way, I, I just want to tell you, out of all the entrepreneurs I know, I don't know one that started a company because they wanted to make more money. That's just I, I don't know anybody like that. And I know hundreds of business owners. It was it was it was an important part of the, but it wasn't the primary. The number one reason. That there's two. Okay. The only reason that I hear all the time is I just had to do it. Okay. And number two is I wanted to control 
over what I worked on. I wanted control. It was all about control. I didn't want somebody telling me what to do. I wanted to make my own decisions. Um, if you can't answer those two questions, because you know, you're not going to make more money for a while. You're really, you're not. Okay. You're not. And so it better not be your primary motive because, and I tell this my son, who's actually a software engineer in a data science division of a major bank, a young kid, 22 years old. And I show him, I say, listen, if you invest, he invests 30% of his, uh, his salary into the stock market. And he has a strategy that he's going to retire when he's 50 years old. Okay. And I, and I show him, I say, listen, if you, if you start your own company, you might have all this upside, but if you stay at your company or stay at in the industry and you put money away, you'll, you'll, you'll probably make the same amount of money that you would if you opened up your own company. So that should not be the driving force if you're going to open up your own company or not. And I think he's going to go with that strategy, which is just continue to work for another company and just save his money. So... Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like you would be great. They say like, hey, uh, how happy you are is like at a job is really depends on the ratio of control to responsibility. Yeah. 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 Uh, I, I worked in a place that's like I had so much responsibility and not that much of a control. And that and now I, I just want to say like, yeah, the income could be the same, but definitely you're going to be happier if you are. Well, I am. You know, listen, I'm 58 years old. I look back at my life and I'm like so happy with the way my life has transpired professionally. Okay. And also personally, as far as the quality time I've had with my family, family, you know, listen, one of the big, I worked for Xerox for eight years. And when I first started my career, I, I didn't want to travel a lot. I thought yeah. that was a mistake for me to be close with my family. So, um, so, you know, anyway, Listen, I got to wrap this up. Um, I know we spent a little more time today because I thought it was an interesting topic. I'd like to thank so very much Reza Farahani uh, for coming on today's podcast. And if you like today's podcast, please feel free to share it with a friend and also subscribe on your favorite podcasting app. And please also give us a review if it's five stars, if you're looking at, uh, you know, if you're really happy with our uh, podcast. And if you're looking for a line of credit for your business, please uh, feel free to visit our website at fscreditline.com. Uh, Razi, if anyone wants to get in touch with you, how would they go about doing that? Awesome. Uh, and thank you, Stephen, for having me on the call. Uh, enjoy the conversation very much. Yeah. And if people want to get a hold of you, how, how could they do that? Uh, I mean, like, I'm in LinkedIn, Twitter. All Reza Farahani, so you can find it like uh, uh, me on LinkedIn and Twitter with this uh, with that uh, tag, yeah. Yep, and so uh, it's spelled R E Z A, and his last name is F A R A H A N I. And so, you know, my takeaway from today to wrap it up is, you know, I, you need to look at your business to see how scalable it really is. Sometimes you could talk to other people about it, and if you don't think it's scalable, and you really you really don't, you know, like if it's not really for you, you either have to do one of two things. You have to find a way to pivot that business to make it scalable, or you need to maybe start another business, uh, which is what I did, right? I just, I said, oh, well, this is really scalable and I'll run it into the ground, but I'm also going to be starting some other businesses at the same time. So to see if I could get another scalable business. So 
Um, other than that, I just want to wish everybody a great day and uh, good luck. And I hope you learned something today. I'll see you later.